All right, if you would please open the Bible to Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 to 14, which you'll find on page 812 in the Pew Bible, or on page 9 in the bulletin, or on your smartphone, if you're one of that sort. Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. If you would please stand. Jesus said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The word of the Lord. Uh, Sovereign Father, I thank you for this chance to be together this morning. I thank you so much for the love that you've placed between us in Christ by the power of your spirit. Uh, Holy Father, we pray now that you would put far away from us those distractions that Jay reminded us of just a few minutes ago. Father, we do come this morning with so many distractions. Please, Father, put those things away from us. Send your spirit that we might truly, Father, hear your word this morning. Believe it, obey it, Father, and rejoice in it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've been spending months on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Alana asked us this week what our favorite book of the Bible is, and I responded honestly that for me, my favorite book of the Bible is whatever we're working on that particular uh, season. And Matthew has become very much, for this season for sure, my favorite, favorite, favoritist book. And the Sermon on the Mount, which, like everybody else in Western civilization, I've known about, I've actually studied it, I've actually preached it. But it's funny, when you open the Bible with God's people, and the Lord comes in and he opens your eyes and opens your ears as he has done for me this week. And I, I can tell you, uh, having read the Golden Rule countless times, it's come to, alive to me this week in a way that I, I never really appreciated it before. So I'm going to read to you from my favorite verse uh, of the Bible. It's uh, uh, the Golden Rule, and uh, it's verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Um, This is another one of those famous, very, very famous, but very, very misunderstood verses in the Bible uh, and in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Arguably one of the most famous, arguably one of the most misunderstood. Um, I don't know if you follow these, these kinds of things. I do in a peripheral kind of way. But in 2007, the United Religions Initiative declared that April 5th is Golden Rule Day. Did you know that? Did you celebrate Golden Rule Day this year? I did not. Uh, but April 5th is Golden Rule Day. 
And uh, if you look up Golden Rule in the premier research tool of the 21st century, Wikipedia, you'll find that uh, the, uh, the idea of the Golden Rule dates at least to the early Confucius times, the early Confucian times, 551 to 479 BCE. According to Rushworth Kidder, who identifies the concept appearing prominently in Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, and, quote, the rest of the world's major religions, unquote. If you follow that closely, they were alphabetized. Uh, that's so that nobody gets prim primary reference. Uh, according to the Wikipedia entry, uh, the golden rule is something that is shared virtually universally. According to that same article, 143 leaders of the world's major faiths have endorsed the golden rule. Good for them. Uh, according to Greg M. Epstein, I don't know if you know that name, but he's the, he is the atheist chaplain at Harvard. According to Greg Epstein, he says, the golden rule is a concept, this is a quote, a concept that essentially no religion misses entirely, but according to the same man Epstein in his book, Good Without God, he says, belief in God is not necessary to endorse the golden rule. So, let me just tell you, that is evidence of how deeply misunderstood the golden rule is. How deeply misunderstood the golden rule is. Now, I actually uh, agree with some of what the Wikipedia article says. It is certainly true that there are elements of what we call the golden rule that we can trace all the way back. And some do say that Confucius in the 5th century B.C., I'll say, before Christ, the 5th century before Christ, that there are references in Confucius's great work, Analytics. And this is what he said, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. And uh, he said that in Chinese, not in English. Um, but that is recognizable. It, it sounds a lot like the golden rule. Do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. That's Confucius. A few centuries later, a famous rabbi named Hillel, who was born in Babylon, moved to Jerusalem to study the Bible, the Old Testament, about the time Christ was born. He died about 10 AD. Hillel is said to have quoted Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and then to help a student of his who asked him to briefly summarize what the law said. And he actually challenged the great Hillel to do it in the time he could stay balanced on one foot. And so Hillel gave it a shot, and this is what he said. That which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That, said Hillel, is the whole Torah. The rest is interpretation. So it turns out Hillel apparently quotes Confucius. Uh, because it's the same idea. Don't do to others what you don't want people to do to you. And sure enough, there's, again, there's a, a lot of similarity between these uh, truths, uh, these things expressed by other people, other religious leaders, and what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. But there's some very, very, very important differences. Uh, for one thing, uh, 
it is uh, expressed in the positive. And there's a huge significance to that. It's one thing to say, don't do the things that annoy you. It's another thing to say, do all the things that you would like other people to do for you. One gives you a, a long but maybe manageable list, and the other is essentially infinite because every single situation will impact on you and how you would like to be treated. Jesus takes what had in other contexts been in the negative and makes it positive which is actually what he's been doing all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, he took aspects of the law, for instance, thou shalt not murder. He took that, a negative, and he said he took from that and made it not only thou shalt not murder and therefore thou shalt not hate your brother, but also he opens it up and makes it a, a, a positive commandment, treat other people with love. That's the opposite of not murdering them. So Jesus takes what is something that in other contexts was expressed negatively and he puts it into the open-ended, all-inclusive, infinite, essentially, positive. So that's one difference. The second difference is the very last phrase. Very often left out of it. You can hear the... The uh, golden rule quoted, and very often they'll lose, leave out the last phrase. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. See, what Jesus is doing is he's anchoring the golden rule in the scriptures, the law, the prophets. He's, he's drawing from the law and the prophets this amazing, all-inclusive word of guidance. So that makes it very different. He, he's tying his golden rule to the scriptures. And you won't really understand the significance of Jesus' teaching on the golden rule, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, without understanding its, its close connection to the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, that's so important to Jesus. If you flip over a few pages to Matthew chapter 22 and verse 40, page 828, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees a question. By the way, Hillel was a, was a Pharisee. Uh, they ask him a question. And uh, in verse 40, sorry, start up at verse 37. He said to the Pharisee, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. We said those words a few minutes ago as Jay led us into confession. So he, he quotes um, that Old Testament teaching. But then look at verse uh, 38 and 39. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. As a matter of fact, you, you really have to take both of these in order to interpret the other. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, sorry, verse 39 and 40, help us to understand Matthew 7, verse 12. 
And Matthew 7, verse 12, helps us to understand Matthew 22, verse 39 and 40. He's saying essentially the same thing in different words, significantly different words, but you'll notice in both cases it's tied, as he says again, the law and the prophets. He's drawing the attention of his disciples to the law and the prophets, which fill out what the golden rule, what we call the golden rule means. It's anchored in the scriptures. So it's very different from a broad moralistic commandment that is floating out in free space where you get to decide what it means. I think it's one of the things the United uh, Religious Initiative might like about it is you fill it in for yourself. But the golden rule as Jesus gives it to us is anchored in the scriptures. You can't really understand it, let alone do it, without understanding it is grounded in the scriptures. So it's different in that way. Flip back to Matthew 7. Several ways in which it's different. You know the way it's most different? It's most different because of who says it. The person who says this is not a great moral teacher like Confucius. He's not a great scripture teacher like Hillel. The person who teaches us, Matthew 7 verse 12, is the one who went to a cross and died for us. He literally did for us what he himself would want others to do for him. He, to the maximum extent, to the fullest extent, Jesus lives out what he tells his disciples to do. And that's the greatest difference of all. History doesn't tell us how well Confucius lived out his moral instructions to his disciples. Hillel, by all accounts, was a pretty good guy. But he has, an empty, he has a tomb that is not empty, or it's, at least it wasn't empty until robbers got it or something. But there, you can visit the tomb of Hillel. But Jesus, the one who speaks to us here, died for us, was raised for us, and now has never-ending life. And that Jesus is the one who tells us the golden rule. Um, it's interesting the name the golden rule where did that come from it's not from the passage obviously where did the, we get the word the golden rule well it's an English expression first of all and it was first written by some Arminian Anglicans who were writing a commentary on this passage and they called it the golden rule apparently because one of the Roman emperors had this, this verse in his uh, throne room and it was, it was there on the wall, and it was literally in gold. And, of course, it became well-known and is still very, very well-known, and so they called it the golden rule. And to this day, all of us who are English speakers, we call it the golden rule. But uh, it's actually the golden rule primarily because it is so precious to us because of the one who spoke it to us. It's the golden rule. I think it's providential, and I, I don't think it's accidental that verse 12 is followed immediately by verses 13 and 14. Jesus, who's just spoken this profound truth about the golden rule, about learning to do for other people all the concrete things that we would want to have done for us, it, 
It shines light on everything from the way we treat the poor, the disadvantaged, the marginalized. In Christ, looking at needy people, whatever their need may be, Jesus tells us, deal with them the way you would like others to deal with you if you were in their circumstances. It gives a a concreteness, an empathy that we wouldn't ordinarily have, but it, it does add that whole dimension. And then he turns in verse 13 and 14 to something different. I've called it the golden way. Now, to my knowledge, I haven't bumped into any other person, any other preacher, commentator, theologian, the international, uh, what is it called? The, the uh, United Religions Initiative doesn't recognize this, but I've called it the golden way because it's also precious. It's also dear to us. Because in verses 13 and 14, uh, Jesus turns our attention uh, to an important decision that all of us has to make. Now, bear in mind, Jesus has had a lot to say about following him. Uh, If you've been here through this series, you'll know back in, in fact, uh, flip over the page to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's This is what he preached. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's where he turns the attention of those who were listening to him. Verses 18 and 19. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. And they did. Immediately in verse 20, they left their nets and they followed Jesus. And then, then there's some others in verse 21. And uh, they also, they follow Jesus. Look down at chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Everywhere Jesus went, from Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 on, this is what Jesus did. He called people. To follow him, to repent, which means to turn towards him and to rearrange our priorities towards him. And he says, follow me. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus proclaimed. He calls us to the golden way. To walk with him. And then in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, as as Jesus is drawing near to the end of his sermon, uh, there's only a few more paragraphs to go. It ends down in chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, with people scratching their heads, trying to figure out what to make out of this amazing teacher. He was much more than Hillel. He was much more than Confucius. He was someone who taught. In, in, a, in such a way and with such authority that it was unique and they, they were left, what do we do with this? And the rest of Matthew's gospel is going to be answering that question. So here in uh, verse uh, 13, he, he turns uh, the attention of those people in the crowd, all these thousands, according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, he's speaking to a crowd And he turns their attention. In verse 13, he pulls them to a point of decision and he says, enter by the narrow gate. That word enter, it's an imperative. 
It's a command. Similar to the one he said to the disciples, follow me. He says, enter by the narrow gate, he says. He presents that imperative. He presented it to the first hearers. They're listening to his sermon for the very first time. He's, he's presented it down through the millennia to you and me. To us sitting here at Metrocrest this morning. There is embedded in this a call from Christ. A, a word to, to enter into this way, this, this narrow gate. Now notice he contrasts it in verse 13 with something else. He talks about uh, a way that is wide, a way that is easy, a way that leads to destruction, a way that has a lot of people on it. He turns from that way, the way that most people go. Most people went then, most people go today, I guess. is On our own, this is the way we go. It's a kind of low-level legalism. It, it might include doing nice things for other people if we think about it. But it's a, very much a selfish, self-oriented way of walking. And Jesus says, it's, it is uh, wide, it's easy, it leads to destruction. So it's in contrast to that that Jesus calls these hearers, and he calls you and me, in verse 14, to a way that is narrow, a way that is hard, a way that leads not to destruction, but to life. And it's the way of following Jesus. It's the way of responding to his call to come. It's the way of responding to his call to repent. It's to follow Jesus. To enter this gate and this way. Now let's, let's think about this. The narrow gate or way. The hard way. The way that leads to life. The narrow way. What does Jesus mean about narrow? You know, I think there are a lot of people who think the church is narrow. It's very possible to be a narrow-minded person, a narrow-minded Christian. There is such a thing. Narrow-minded, selfish, inward-looking, uh, always pushing other people away, always being um, narrowly focused on me and what's important to me and what's important to my tribe and what's important to my set of, of ways of thinking. And that, that can contribute to an attitude of narrowness. And I don't doubt everyone in this church has bumped into a narrow-minded Christian. They do exist. And I think it's possible for someone to read about the narrow gate and the narrow way and imagine something like that. Is that what Jesus is saying? That we should be have high walls and deep moats, very, very tight, unopened to other people, narrow in that way? No. You know how the gate is narrow? You know how the way is narrow? It's as narrow as one person. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the way. And what that demands from you and me is what does not come easy, which is to humble ourselves. It's humbling to turn and admit our brokenness and admit our failures and our sinfulness how we've let other people down to turn and turn to Jesus 
and enter life with and through him. And I think that is primarily how it is narrow. It's narrow in that way. In all due respect to the United Religions Initiative, this is, this is teaching that applies to those who turn to Jesus Christ. It's narrow that way. It's also hard. Jesus says, uh, the gate is narrow, the way is hard. It's very naive to imagine the Christian life is easy. Uh, Jesus is a great believer in truth and advertising. I say this all the time because he goes out of his way. If you look all the way back at the very beginning of the sermon, if you look over back a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus is just starting. He's just a few sentences into his sermon as it's recorded in Matthew's gospel. He says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. That's hard. (laughs) That is very, very hard. And he puts it at the very beginning. Later on, he's going to call it taking up a cross. Just a couple of Sundays from now, we'll, we'll talk about taking up a cross. Uh, that's how hard it is to follow Jesus, to uh, die to self, to, to put my, me and my own selfish goals, my own selfish interests, to set it all aside. Look, if you would, over at Philippians chapter 3. Paul wrestled with this and he teaches the church in Philippi about, sorry, chapter 2. Jesus, I mean, Paul wrestles with this and Philippians chapter 2 challenges the church in Philippi as he challenges us. uh, Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, not in Confucius, not in Hillel, not in other moral teachers, but in Christ Jesus. And then to teach this simple, important truth, Paul brings in the entire incarnation of Christ, all the way from his humble birth to his ignoble death. He brings in all of that and he says, now you treat each other like Jesus treats us. And that's hard work. Look at how Paul describes it just a bit later on. Uh, Peter, uh, Paul describes how he struggles. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. My beloved, as you always obey, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He calls it work. It's hard. But then he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he tells us to work. It's not easy to put other people first. It requires effort. It requires thought. It requires death to self. does not mean become a doormat. It means becoming something infinitely better, to become like Jesus, to put the interests of other people first. That's hard work. But thankfully, Paul reminds us that That work is possible because of the work God has done and is doing in us. And we can lean into that 
as we seek to live out Christ's call to the golden way. Uh, we sang a song just a minute ago, How Firm a Foundation. I, I love the music Nick chooses. Uh, if you look at chap, uh, page three in the bulletin, it says the, the last three verses. When through the deep waters I called you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress, the, the most distressing, painful, awful things we endure. God sanctifies them. He uses them on the way, the golden way. He uses them to teach us, to help us become more like Jesus. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. To cleanse our lives of the attitudes, the behaviors, the motives, the faulty ways of thinking, the sin in our lives, God uses life in the way to purify us, to make us more golden like Jesus. So it's a hard way. Jesus tells us that. But the assurance is the one who tells us that has on the cross secured our salvation. We're no longer seeking desperately to be good enough, to be nice enough, to be kind enough, to get all the rules right. That's not our position. Our position as followers of Jesus on the way is those who have been forgiven our sins, who've been washed in the blood of Christ, and now who seek to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with reverence, with awe, knowing that it is God at work within us, changing us, making us more like the golden Christ. And then finally, it's the way that leads to life. The narrow way that's only through Christ, the hard way, is the way that leads to life. Um, the uh, hymn, All of Our Tomorrows, which we sang, had, had a couple of really, really beautiful lines. And I, I, I love it. it the the uh, last stanza says, Hands to the plow, we are pressing on. And running hard to win the prize. Those are quotes from Paul, who's summarizing Jesus, who's describing life on the way. He says, running hard to win the prize, empowered by the love of God, with grace before and grace behind, for lo, what hope before us stands. You finish all that you began. Eternal joy is in your hands, and all of our tomorrows. The hard way, the narrow way, is the way, brothers and sisters, that leads us to eternity, eternal joy, life. The other way leads to death. It's easy. It's broad. The hard way is the way of life. I want to close just briefly call this last section as I, I title the sermon the golden rule on the golden way you can't really separate the golden rule from the golden way 
In all due respect to the United Religions Initiative, Matthew chapter 7 verse 12 is not Jesus optional, let alone God optional. They only make sense ultimately together. The rest may be good advice, but the way of life is putting these two together. Living a life worthy of the gospel, worthy of the great price that Christ has paid for us, not to earn his favor, not to earn salvation by being good enough, but to say thank you and to live a life of response to what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us in his son. And that is the golden rule on the golden way. That's the way it makes sense. That's the way here at MetroCrest we're called to live it out. It's not disconnected from Jesus. It's not us trying really hard. It's us living out our life by the power of the Spirit in the light of what Christ has done for us. Well, uh, I think Jesus is wrapping up his sermon in a phenomenal way.